And today on Health in the Whole, we are talking about eating disorders with Mary Ryan, who is both a dietitian and a counselor. We talk about the prevalence in males and females and how young eating disorders can start and what the signs are to look for both in yourself and those you care about. She shares how you can broach the subject with others when you're concerned and what treatment looks like. Want to get amazing insights and perspectives from local health and fitness professionals here in Jackson Hole? This is the podcast, and I am your host, Dr. Laura Wright. All right, everyone, welcome to Health in the Hole. I am here today with Mary Ryan, who is a registered dietitian. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. Awesome. So let's start with just your history. What brought you here? What led you to become a dietitian? Um, well, first of all, I want to say I'm a dietitian and, and I'm also a therapist. Okay. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker as well, which becomes relevant later as we're talking. Um, yeah. So, you know, I initially was attracted to nutrition. Um, but it was a long time ago. My dad was diagnosed with cancer and he was in his early fifties and I was living here in Jackson and really trying to figure out what I want to do career wise. I've been working in food and beverage since college, graduating from college and, um, his illness really, um, uh, you know, I didn't really understand cancer at that point. It was back mm-hmm. in the mid nineties. So I read a bunch of books and tried to understand his journey and just kept coming upon upon nutrition everywhere, you know, related to treatment and prevention and, you know, even in anecdotal cases, people who had gone into remission from making changes. Right. And so I, I was just really drawn to the power of nutrition. And in that, that sense, probably more of the healing and disease prevention components. And then um, I also, then I met with um, Therese Metherell, who I, I don't know if you've had a chance to meet her yet, but she's I've a met her in person. Here. I haven't had her on oh, yet. Oh, good. So okay. She's awesome. So she, yeah, she is awesome. And so I met with her and just picked her brain about her career. And mm-hmm. at that time, you know, she's been in private practice here for a long time. And um, I was so inspired. And I realized that, you know, several times when I've been kind of caught up in this ski bum restaurant working phase of my life, I when I was thinking about other things I wanted to do, I was really drawn toward counseling and teaching and writing. And I could never make up my mind. And then all of a sudden, this career path came along that I could incorporate all three of those things. So that was pretty exciting too. And so, yeah, that started me on my journey. And then you went off to school and then moved back to the area or was it on? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I went um, and actually I had been an English major undergrad. So I actually had a lot of prerequisite coursework to do before I could get into a, mm-hmm. a grad program for nutrition. And so, um, so I did that. I did some of my prerequisite stuff back on the East Coast and then the rest of it in Salt Lake City. And that's also where I got my master's degree and my dietitian credential. And then I came back to Jackson and started Beyond Broccoli. Um, that was in 2000. Well, I started Beyond Broccoli in 2001. And um yeah. And then, yeah, don't let you ask. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, it's just your story is fun as well. Like I studied yeah. linguistics in college, came here, worked in restaurants. Oh, nice. 
And then uh-huh. like went back to school and like had to take all the prerequisites as well. Cause like linguistics, yep. you haven't taken all the science courses. So yes, that's, exactly. That's super yep. fun. Okay. And so you, you specialize in eating disorders. How did you get involved yeah. in that area? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think every time I'm asked this question, I I might have a slightly different answer because I've just done so much reflecting on it, Mm -hmm. but um, I never set out to work in eating disorders. That's just, that wasn't really part of my plan. However, as I look back, there were definitely some things that made it a natural fit that I now recognize. So one of the first things is um, in my first, I wanna say it was in the first few months of my private practice, I recognized that, you know, at the end of the day, the real work I do with clients is behavior change. You know, so, I mean, I can know everything there is about nutrition and, you know, pass that along to clients, but if they can't actually change their behavior, then it doesn't matter. Right. So, um, so, you know, I, kind of started my practice with this idea. I really had to work with that. I had to understand food psychology, human psychology, human behavior. And so that sort of started me, you know, in that therapeutic approach and then I also was an early adopter for both the health at every size and intuitive eating paradigms. Okay. I mean, back at that time, you know, people weren't really talking broadly about that in the nutrition field. And so, um, but it really impacted me because, you know, I'd seen like in both my private, you know, my personal struggles with, you know, nutrition and body image and various things. When I was younger, I had done a bunch of fad diets and they never really worked. And I watched Mm -hmm. everyone around me doing it. And so I I had a pretty strong sense from the beginning in my practice that I did not want to do that. I, I really identified as a non-diet dietitian before that was really even a thing. And so, um, so that also set me up to just, you know, attract people who were having struggles with food and food and the relationship with food and weight and body image as well. And so um, I would say that, you know, in the early days, I probably saw a lot more people who identified as emotional eaters kind of along that continuum. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it's a small community. So I ended up seeing a little of everything. And then as I started seeing nutrition, I mean, um, eating disorder clients, well, I immediately knew. I needed more training because it's a very specialized field. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very intimidated initially by the work because it's very complex. Um, However, you know, um, it also just fit with the way I like to approach things holistically and working as a team, you know, so when I see eating disorder clients, they are ideally, they also have a medical provider they're working with, they have a therapist they're working with. And so I really loved that too, you know, being part of a team, like all working together to help our clients succeed. So, and then when, um, so I did that, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I, I gradually started seeing more clients, more eating disorder clients as I got more education and training and became more comfortable. And then um, my husband and I went to the Seattle area in uh, 2009 when the economy tanked here. And we, um, while I was in Seattle, I taught nutrition at Bastyr University for all four years we were there. And then the last two years, I also worked at an intensive outpatient clinic for eating disorders. And that was really where I would say I, I got fully immersed in it. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's also at the end of that is when I became a, you know, certified with the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. And, 
Um, yeah. And then I came back to Jackson and I was all fired up to like have this specialty. And unfortunately at that time, we really didn't have a lot of therapists who were very, who were well um, educated and experienced related to eating disorders. And that's ultimately what, what prompted me to go back and, and get a second master's in, I chose to get a master's in social work and um, pursue my LCSW credentials so that I could actually do the full spectrum of work mm-hmm. with clients. So do you, you, are you typically working with clients now on your own or are there now other therapists that work with them and MDs that you work with? There are. Um, so yeah, we have um, two very excellent psychologists who both grew up here. They left the Valley, went back to school studied and they they ended up doing eating disorder education and training as part of their work and then they both moved back within a year of each other while I was in grad school for for social work so um so yeah so I still I actually still do um and that's so Nicole Rue and Sadie Monahan are those two the two psychologists and Nicole especially I mean Sadie has ended up branching out more so she still does do some of that work but Nicole does a lot more of it and so I work as the dietitian with her for her clients and um, love that we have a great working relationship and then um, and then you know what ends up happening with eating disorders that you know sometimes people don't under don't know that they have one right mm-hmm. they don't know that they meet criteria for that so they might go into therapy for some of their struggles and then an eating disorder is apparent or or you know things worsen and what was kind of random disordered behaviors end up coalescing around a full-scale eating disorder. So um, so I would say, the reason I say that is there are other lots of other therapists here who probably have at least some clients in their caseloads that have an eating disorder or a history of one. Interesting. So how, how prevalent are eating disorders nationally? And then do you know how like the Teton area compares? Because we're, we're such a highly athletic area, which I mean, there's talk, you know, now in the climbing community about like how that can drive eating disorders. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so as, as far as local numbers, we don't really know. I mean, I, I put together a study or like a, a survey, I think it was the year before I went back to, to grad school for, for social work. And so maybe 2015 timeframe, somewhere around there. And I was trying to get a sense of that. And, you know, just asking clinicians, you know, roughly how many clients do you see per year and didn't really get a great response. And, um, but I will tell you that we did, um, when I first got back to Jackson, so I got back here in 2013, I guess, so it would have been probably 2014, we did um, a panel at the library. And there were, um, there was, we showed a short film, a local filmmaker had made this documentary, a short documentary about his sister who struggled with both anorexia and bulimia. And so we showed that film and then we had a, a, myself and a therapist and um, a nurse practitioner who's done a lot of work with eating disorders and someone in recovery. And we packed the place. I mean, the library, we had a lot. And then a lot of people who were there, you know, they wanted more information and resources. And so, and that was five years ago or six, almost six years ago now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, I think nationally, you know, there, first of all, if anyone's interested in knowing more about the specific statistics, the NIDA website, National um, uh, Eating Disorder Association and EDA, 
has a fantastic website. And I'll come back to that later too, but they have resources for all kinds of things. And so I, I was kind of scanning through um, some of the statistics and, you know, we, what we, we, it's roughly somewhere between, you know, one and 2% of, of females and about a third of, of that number of males that develop anorexia. The numbers are a little higher for bulimia and then even higher for binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, I think a couple of things are important to note here. First of all, and this kind of ties into some other, some of your other questions. So we might you know, like talk, come back to some of this, but um, yeah. when, when you say eating disorder, the average person unless they have some experience with it, either they know someone or they've had their own experiences, they're likely to maybe think of anorexia Mm -hmm. or maybe they may think of anorexia and bulimia, you know, where there's some self-induced vomiting or other kinds of, of abusive, um, you know, purging kinds of of behaviors. Um, Most people don't think binge eating disorder, um, which is actually problematic. And it actually did not even get into the DSM-5, which is the, the psychological manual basically mm-hmm. until 2013. So it was a research diagnosis prior to that. And so, and then then there are the probably the largest group of eating disorders that you don't hear about are the people who kind of dabble in a variety of disordered behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So they don't fit nice neatly into anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. And it may fluctuate over time or, you know, circumstances. So here in Jackson, I would say that the most common presentations I see are one, one is a relatively new diagnosis. It just came uh, along with binge eating disorder in the 2013 DSM. And that is when someone is um, doing some restricting, but then there's some binging and then the purging takes the form of excessive exercise. I believe that. Right. So, and I would say exercise is a component in almost every eating disorder I deal with here in Jackson. Not all, but I would say predominantly that is, that's a problem. I mean, we, in Jackson, I would say, and then the other thing that comes up a lot, it's not actually a technically an eating disorder diagnosis, but orthorexia. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it. I don't, yeah, I don't know right now. So orthorexia is basically an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Okay. Yes. And it's, it's very often, so it's not its own diagnosis, but I see it a lot in my, um, in my clients and it doesn't matter what other eating disorder diagnosis they have, it can fit into any of them. Right. So there um, I've had clients who, I mean, it's certainly part of their, the way they restrict their food. It's, it may not be so much, it might be a calorie restriction as well, but it's more about, you know, having to eat perfectly, you know, mm-hmm. having to only eat certain things. And if, if the, the perfect foods aren't available, they'd rather not eat. And um, which, you know, in some cases that can work out okay, but obviously taken to an extreme, it's very dangerous. And then, um, and then I've also had clients who, that's their trigger to purge. You know, they eat well most of the time, but if they eat something they feel like doesn't fit into their, their, you know, rigid rules around eating, Mm -hmm. then they're going to do some kind of purging behavior, whether that's, you know, excessive exercise and excessive exercise. I mean, it's so hard to, you know, living, (laughs) living in Jackson, like you can't even really, um, 
I don't know, when I look at the research, the more, you know, objective research around exercise problems, I have to laugh because, you know, like so many people in Jackson would fit the criteria. Right. Um, so, you know, that makes it hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll stop there. Cause no, I, I was going to ask, so, I mean, is it, do you call that disordered eating? I feel like it's called that, like when people don't have a specific eating disorder, but they have, you know, different, you know, obsession with food or their diet or restriction. Mm -hmm. I've heard it called disordered eating. Is that, is that a common phrase or is that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's used, it's jargon that's used a lot in the, in the field, professional fields. I would say um, the difference there and, and, you know, this, I actually, I think it's really confusing for people to have disordered eating and eating disorders. I feel like it's, we should like find new words to describe it, to be honest. But, um, but you know, to your, to your question, I think, um, disordered eating is, um, just those habits that can happen at any level. Right. And when it becomes an eating disorder, it's when those patterns happen enough with enough frequency or enough severity that they meet actual criteria for a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then parsing that out, I mean, it's really hard because sometimes people have, you know, they'll go through something in their lives or a life transition is really common to trigger disordered behaviors. And then something happens and it rises to the level where it actually could be diagnosed as a disorder, but then it tapers off in another few months or something, you know? So, so I think it's, it's hard um, with those two things. And, you know, the other thing is when we talk about disordered behavior, Behaviors. I mean, one of the most common ones is dieting, and that is so normalized. I would say that the average person would never think of that as disordered. And yeah. so, yeah. It is interesting. So what, what factors will increase the risk of people developing eating disorders? Is there like things that you can pinpoint, like if this has happened in your life or you were raised this way, you're more likely and, and we see them more in females, but also in males. Yeah. So there are a lot of different factors. Um, you know, there, there's been some really inter- interesting research on people who are, have certain temperaments or who are more predisposed to um, anxiety and depression um, so, or have co-occurring disorders. Um, people who struggle with substances, you know, drugs and alcohol have a much higher incidence of eating disorders and vice versa. Um, trauma is a huge one, early life trauma in particular. Um, that's a risk factor for all kinds of mental health problems, including eating disorders. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I have some colleagues in the eating disorder field who, who really have, um, you know, sort of lobbied informally to have eating disorders reclassified as anxiety disorders because it's such a huge part. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's actually really helpful when I'm working with clients who are just, who haven't been diagnosed yet, but they know something's off. Sometimes it's really helpful for them to understand that, that anxiety and depression can drive these behaviors and that, you know, cause they, they might feel like there's something wrong with them, you know, mm-hmm. like, why am I doing this? And so like knowing that those things are really closely related can help. Um, but there are also, I mean, there are, there are a lot of other factors too, like low self-esteem, bullying, um, you know, especially during childhood, um, feeling, you know, just having feelings of, um, you know, inefficacy and not feeling like you have a lot of choice. Like we see, 
there's actually, um, it's kind of interesting. There's, there's been a big spike in um, eating disorders in older people and, um, and in, you know, the geriatric population, sometimes it comes along at a time when they don't have control over anything, it seems like anymore. And so the one thing they can still control is whether they eat or not. And yeah. so, so yeah, so, and then life transitions, I would say are, are probably the time periods where we're most likely to see them. And, you know, one of the things when you asked about statistics and prevalence, one of the things that's always kind of annoyed me with um, how we talk about prevalence in the field is that we only, we're only measuring what we see, right? right? And so, you know, there's this, this misunderstanding that eating disorders are mainly confined to adolescents, let's say, right? right? But when you think about it, that's who's most likely to get diagnosed, right? They have parents watching over them or coaches or doctors or nurse practitioners, right? So they, they're much more likely to be, to be, di to be observed and, and then to be given treatment. And that's where we get a lot of our statistics yeah. from people who actually get help. And so you think of all the people who don't get help for a wide variety of reasons. And so I think they're a lot more prevalent than the statistics really convey. Yeah, that was, that was my next, leads into my next question, like what stereotypes or generalizations? And I would say like, there is a generalization, like, you know, like female teenager, is most yep. likely as our generalization. Any other ones you'd like to like clear up? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I mean the male female thing. Like the one of the the, you know, the 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 statistics for um, for eating disorders are um, somewhat well for anorexia and bulimia anyway are somewhat stable over time. There's been a mm -hmm. there's been somewhat of an increase both here and and in um, some of the other Western countries where they do a lot of um, collecting statistics. However, one of the fastest growing areas is males with eating disorders, and what's really in fact I think I have some stats about that here. Where did I say this? Um, um, yeah, so um, there's been a pretty, from 1999 to 2009, the number of men hospitalized for an eating disorder related cause increased by 53%. Wow. And males represent 25% of individuals with anorexia. They are at higher risk of dying in part because they're often diagnosed later. So they're much sicker by the time they get diagnosed. And that's the other thing we know in general, like the, the, the sooner you make the, the proper diagnosis and get adequate levels of treatment, the better the outcome, right? I mean, it makes sense. That's, that's how we approach health issues or ideally anyway, would approach health issues as well, right? We catch it early, give it the right kind of treatment mm -hmm. and then we get better outcomes. Well, you know, any, anyone who's delayed treatment, whether that's because they're from a marginalized community, they're in an age group or they, I mean, people, people think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's usually like the wealthy adolescent white girls is like right. the sort of stereotype, right? Well, we know that eating disorders do not discriminate. They're, they occur in every um, racial and ethnic group. They occur in every age group. They occur every gender identity, sexual preference, et cetera. So, so and, you know, it's another one of those things where um, I think a lot of people have and when you have in the background that, you know, this only happens to people in a certain demographic, you're just not looking for it. 
in mm-hmm. other people. And it's really easy to miss. And then I would also say that the other, the other thing, um, you know, anorexia, when it reaches the level of someone having health issues and they are observably underweight or underweight according to, you know, medical charts and things, they're most likely to be identified, right? Well, what we now know is that that people can have anorexic behaviors and have a lot of severe consequences related to their health at any weight. So, so, but we can't call it anorexia in that case anymore because we've already defined it in this other way. And so, mm-hmm. so that's, a, that's another example of where um, someone who might have um, a, an ati- what we consider an atypical presentation, there isn't even really a diagnosis for them or, or they get thrown in that, now we call it OSFED. It used to be eating disorders, not, other, not otherwise specified. Anyway, it doesn't really matter what we call it, but, but it does matter because insurance companies don't pay equally oh, for treatment with some of those things. Yeah. So. so there's a long way to go in terms of like classifying and getting insurance on it. And- yep, exactly. Exactly. And also, and then also more broadly identifying it, you know, so yeah, for sure. In terms of identifying it, what are, what do you, what do you look for in terms of signs? What should we be looking for in ourselves or like friends or family members we care about? So, you know, what I, what I think of with this is um, kind of like any mental health problem really um, changes, you know, changes either in, if it's in yourself, like if you're noticing, especially your in changes in your relationship to, I'd say food, nutrition, your body, how you see your, how you see yourself, mm-hmm. um, becoming more obsessive, more rigid, more rules. Um, you know, I, I don't like to support the, the stereotype of, you know, an eating disorder as a diet gone awry. But the reality is that is that is a gateway. You know, there are a lot of people who start out, they're just going to eat a little healthier or lose a few pounds or, you know, whatever it is. And then they get on this path. And if they have, especially if they have one of those vulnerabilities I talked about earlier, they have a predisposition to anxiety and depression. If they have mm-hmm. some, you know, trauma history or some other things that might predispose them to kind of, you know, get into trouble with those behaviors. Um, yeah. And then how does it affect kids? Like at what ages are we seeing it? And what, you know, when do we stop worrying about them being just, you know, picky eaters versus something, you know, worse might be going on as we see just increased, you know, media to kids and body image issues in younger and younger kids. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I mean, I know that there really is um, a problem currently with not having enough treatment centers for, for younger kids. I mean, a lot of treatment centers don't accept, you have to be 12 or 13 before you can, mm-hmm. you can be accepted. And even then, you know, it's a subset of places where you would even be under 15 where you would okay. be accepted. So um, yeah, we're seeing it in younger, younger. I don't have the number. I don't have numbers off the top of my head for that, mm-hmm. but like going back to your question, I would say that, that, um, you know, it's, it's so hard to say. Um, I, I always, 
I think looking for changes, you know, looking for where if something, if you notice like they're picky, but then you notice that they're spending more time in front of the mirror or saying more negative comments about their bodies or comparing themselves like a lot of kids and teens right now that are on screens all day. It's terrible, right? For so many reasons, but like right. one of the th- one of the side effects of that is just looking at themselves all day and comparing to all the other squares, you know. And so, um, so noticing those kinds of changes, noticing an increase in anxiety, or or just isolating, um, not eating in front of other people, and that could be for under eating or overeating, you know, mm-hmm. eating in secret. Um, so, so those changes in behavior. I I think is a main thing. And I would say both if you're a concerned person, concerned about someone else or yourself, those are, that's something that you could kind of try to identify. And so, yeah, what do you do? Like if you were like, I might have, you know, disordered eating or an eating disorder, who is the first person? Do they go to therapist first, dietitian first? I mean, you're both like talk to the primary care practitioner. Mm -hmm. Whoever they'll, whoever they're comfortable talking to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens all different ways. I mean, I've had clients as the dietitian, I've had clients that have come to me, I can't diagnose as a dietitian. Well, now I can because I'm both. But before I became a therapist, I, I, you know, that's outside of my scope. Mm -hmm. But obviously, I work with it. So I, I know it when I see it. So um, and then I've had lots of referrals from healthcare providers. Um, therapist. I mean, yeah, whoever you feel comfortable in, in some cases, it could be a parent, um, a mentor, a coach, a teacher, um, a guidance, I mean, some a school counselor, I mean, depending on the age and, and where they are. But I would say, you know, the biggest thing is to just talk to someone to start. And then ideally, I mean, you know, I am definitely biased toward trying to talk to someone as a next step who actually knows about eating disorders because there are so many therapists and dietitians who don't get that training. And so they may not know what to look for. And they mean it, I I've just had, I've had a number of clients over the years who were messed, you know, they were in therapy and some, sometimes for years and they never talked about it with their therapist. Yeah. And, um, or their dietitian, dietitians too. Like, you know, our gen, my general training, even though I have a master's degree in nutrition, it, it didn't even touch, it, it didn't scratch the surface for what I needed to know to do this work well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how I got your name is Eden was like, you used to talk to Mary Wright. Yeah. And she's like, I work with diet, but like, this is what she specializes in and does. Yeah. And then what if somebody you care about is struggling? How do, how do you broach that conversation? with them? What's Mm -hmm. the best way to ask about it and help them? So, you know, um, I get asked this a lot and it kind of depends on the relationship that you have Mm -hmm. with them. Right. So, um, if you have a close enough, really, I mean, I'd say the first thing I would ask, even before looking specifically at food behaviors or, you know, body image comments or anything like that would be if you, because usually you're going to notice a bunch of things. You're going to notice that they, they seem more down or more anxious or something. Just asking, Hey, are you okay? You know, is, is, is anything going on? And like, instead of diving right into, oh, well, I noticed. And then if, if they're open to having a conversation, you could sort of share some of the things that you've noticed that concern you. And 
you know, I'm kind of a big fan of being honest as much as you can within the context of that relationship, because um, so many people with all kinds of mental health issues, not just eating disorders, struggle in silence for a long time before they get help. And, you know, so many clients over the years, both eating disorder and I also, you know, substance use disorders is another area of specialty for me as, as a therapist. And mm-hmm. I would say with both of those things, I can't tell you the number of clients who, who said to me, you know, I was so glad someone finally said something to me, you know, and, and in some cases they're not happy about it, you know, like they might be, they might be frustrated or um, irritable um, and yet they're happy that someone noticed right? Someone noticed that things weren't, weren't working well. So. So it's worth, you know, talking about it, not just assuming, oh, they're going to get defensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, Nita, the website I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. does have some great resources too. Like they have resources for if you have a friend or um, coaches and um, healthcare professionals or whoever, um, parents, a lot of stuff. Like they have a toolkit for parents and they have a toolkit for coaches. And so, so even like scrolling through some of that might just give you some ideas of some questions to ask Mm -hmm. or some behaviors to look for beyond what I mentioned already. Um, I mean, it's pretty individualized. So I kind of kept my response pretty general, but um, you know, I think, I, I think just it's, it's like that, you know, that saying, if you see something, say something. Right. Yeah. And so then, okay, you've talked about some Nita. Your, how about your own business? Tell us how people work with you, find you, what resources, and you have a lot of resources on your website as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So, um, you know, if people are interested in, um, well, first of all, you know, I have my website. I did update my website last fall to try to, you know, incorporate more of my experience, my philosophy and approach so people can kind of check me out if they're interested. And then there, as you said, there are some resources there. I offer free 15 minute consult if someone wants to just call and say, hey, you know, I, I'm not sure if I should if I should book an appointment. And I don't know if I, and then sometimes it, it also gets messy with this. I don't know if I should see a therapist or, or a dietitian or see you for both. And I mean, I should say that the gold standard for eating disorder treatment is not actually to have one person doing more than one role. Um, So, you know, sometimes if I see someone for an eating disorder, especially, they really do need a separate dietitian or therapist. And so if they don't have anything, if they just come to me first, then we'll kind of talk about what they think would be, you know, whether they want to go look for a dietitian or a therapist and use me as a dietitian. Um, so yeah, so my website and, um, and then also, um, how do they find me? Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to even mention social media because I have a Beyond Broccoli Facebook page that I'm terrible about updating. And, uh, I keep saying that I'm going to get, you know, I have an Instagram and I have, um, Twitter account. And I just don't use, I really just don't do much with social media, unfortunately. Um, That could change at some point, but, um, but I would say, you know, I'm really approachable. I love talking to people and I I don't have any attachment. Like if someone talks to me and they decide that I'm not going to be a great fit for them as a provider, but I can at least educate them and make some suggestions. I love doing that. I do consults with parents who are concerned about a child and they're just not sure they can book an appointment with me and we can just talk through it. And then I can make some suggestions and um, provide them with some other resources. So yeah. 
Very cool. Anything else that you want to add on that I might have missed in terms of eating disorders or your approach to working with people? Um, I don't, th- I mean, boy, there, it, it's, there's just so much to talk about. Um, I, yeah, I, I th- I'm just really glad you're doing this. I'm so, so glad that, um, that you invited me to talk about this today. I feel like there's a lot that need, we need to talk about this more mm-hmm. and especially in our community. Cause I think, you know, there's this, this idea that we're so healthy, right? Like you said at one point right. earlier, you know, we're active, we're healthy, we care about food and we care about quality. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that those can be taken to an extreme without really knowing how, how sometimes you don't know it till you get there. Yeah. You know, so, um, so anyway, I think it's a great conversation to, to start and hopefully we'll, it'll be ongoing in different ways. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then just parting thought okay. in your own health journey, what one habit or change has been the most impactful for you? So that's such a great question. Um, I, I can't, when I was thinking about this, I can't think of one particular habit per se, but I will say that the life-changing thing for me was really the whole intuitive eating paradigm. Just really recognizing that, oh, you know, I, I can sort of look more closely at, you know, am I hungry? Am I full? Am I eating for emotional reasons? Or, you know, coming, coming at health from a, an intuitive eating perspective completely changed not only my professional work, but my personal habits and my personal journey. So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mary. It was a pleasure having you on. Oh, I really enjoyed it, Laura. Yeah, I'm excited to get this topic out there. Thanks for listening to Health in the Whole. If you liked it, please subscribe so you can hear the next episodes. And remember, this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare provider before doing anything drastic. Sneak peek coming out next week is my interview with Kevin Meehan on how he combines acupuncture and biochemistry, as well as the cooking courses based on specific diagnoses that he offers.